Welcome to New Life. We're so excited to celebrate Easter Sunday with you. My name's Kelvin. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life. And with me is Anna, our small groups and young adults pastor. It's our privilege to host you today. Wherever you're joining us from, we're so glad to have you with us. And as we join together today, we'd love to encourage you to interact in the chat. Take a moment to let us know who you are and where you're joining us from. As you get acquainted with one another there on the chat, I'd love to let you know what to expect as we worship together. During the service, lyrics will be broadcast at the bottom of your screen. So stand up, stay seated, move about the room you're in, and sing with us as we worship God today. You'll also notice a prayer button on your screen. We have pastors who would love to pray with you and for you at any time during the service. Simply click on the button and you'll be directed to a private and confidential individual prayer room with one of our team. Sunday is here. On Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate that He is risen. Yes, the discovery of an empty tomb. We celebrate Christ's victory over sin and death. We've just come out of a series on Genesis where we've explored and witnessed a number of journeys through the wilderness. Easter for us is a way out of the wilderness and a return to the garden where a way was made for us to come back into communion with God. Will you join us as we worship? Days may be darkest, but your light is greater. You light our way, God, you light our way. When evil is rising, you're rising higher with power to save, with power to save. If you keep hope alive, you keep hope alive. From the beginning to end, your word never fails. You keep hope alive, because you are alive. Jesus, you are alive. Death had a stronghold, but your life was stronger. Rose from the grave, rose up from the grave. You're rising higher with how to save, with power to save. Oh, you keep hope alive. You keep hope alive from the beginning to end. Your word never fails. You keep hope alive because you are alive. Jesus, you are alive.
into the night then through the darkness your loving kindness told through the shadows of my soul the work is finished the end is written Jesus Christ my
Well, welcome to Easter Sunday. It has been such a delight to have you with us at our Easter Sunday online service here at the New Life Family of Churches. My name is Michael Hands, and I'm the lead minister here at New Life Church. And I want to thank you that on Sunday morning, you chose to come and celebrate the meaning of Easter with us. It is Easter Sunday, and so here at New Life, every year we celebrate a tradition that's been celebrated for centuries in the church. It starts by me saying, He is risen, and by those who are listening saying in response, He is risen indeed. Now, this is actually code in the early church for people to work out if they were Christians or not. So we're going to celebrate this today. Let's try this out. You're going to say it to the screen or to someone around you. He is risen. He is risen indeed. I don't know if you joined in, but let's believe you did. Because friends, this is good news today. And I want to lead us for just a moment through why the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is still good news here today in the midst of whatever you're facing in 2021. Jesus Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we come before you today, I pray that you would stir in us the joy that this day should reflect. The joy that record that recognizes our sin is not the last part of the story. The punishment for our sin is not the last part of the story. But you have resurrected and so too have conquered it all. So Father, in that power and in that life, may we be transformed and changed today. If we don't know you, reveal your reality to us today. May we encounter your presence anew and afresh. Help me, Father, to diminish that our, our ears would hear your voice beyond mine. Less of me. More of you, I pray, in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I love this story of a church that was putting on an Easter narrative play. And these two young boys, these two five-year-old boys were sitting down in the very front row. And they were falling in love with this character of Jesus as they watched him on the platform minister to different people in the ancient Near East. And, and there were these beautiful parts in the story where they started to really admire and respect this character of Jesus. But as Jesus entered into Holy Week in the narrative at this church, this one young boy became horrified as he saw the very crowds that Jesus ministered to start to turn on him. In fact, the, the writer of this story tells us that the boy's face grew in fear and anxiety as this five-year-old boy realized that the crowd around him, the crowd on stage playing out this play, were going to kill the very character that he had fallen in love with. And as Good Friday came around, he was grieved, disappointed, vexed, even anxious and afraid that the narrative of Jesus ends with him on a cross. And it's quite a beautiful picture. You can almost see this young five-year-old boy at the very front row of church in horror that Jesus dies. But then his five-year-old friend, who clearly was not his first time in church, turns to him, puts his arm around him, and leans in and whispers and says, don't worry, he comes back. I love that story. I love that story because it's like this moment where one young friend sees the reality of the sinful situation of the world grip his friend, and leans in and tells him of the hope of Easter Sunday. Don't worry, he comes back. But sometimes we do this as well. Like we, we rush to the end of the story. And instead of this being a moment of joyful hope for us, it can actually rob us of the significance of Easter Sunday. So for a moment, I want you to step away from the, the knowledge that you know, don't worry, he comes back. And I want you to enter with me into what the disciples would have felt on that day when they awoke. In fact, I reckon all of us have had a measure of that day in our life at some stage. At some stage, every single one of us has awoken to one of those days. I'm sure you know what I mean. Where you wake up in bed and the reality of what you're about to face or what you are currently facing crushes you again. Maybe it was one of those days where you've woken to recognize the test results that you received during the week or the day before 
are still real. Maybe it's one of those days where you've woken up to know that meeting that you've been dreading in your calendar is today. Maybe it's one of those days where that relational difficulty, that family member, that work colleague that you have to face, man, that's still happening. Some of us have gone to bed the night before hoping that what we're walking through in life is actually just a really bad nightmare and that we will one day wake up to find out it was not real and you've woken up only to find out that it's all still circulating around you. I think we all know some measure of what the disciples must have felt on that Sunday all those years ago when they awoke to find that their Savior was still dead, that the narrative of Christ's crucifixion was still true. Their plans were disrupted. Their hopes were dashed. Their dreams were squashed. And into this narrative, we find in the Gospels that the women go to the tomb to finalize Christ's burial rites. They go to the tomb to anoint his body with fragrances to kind of finally seal off what had happened on the cross on Friday. But when they get there, they find that the tomb is empty. And this only adds injury to Mary. We rush to the end of the story. We're like, yeah, but we know why the tomb's empty. They didn't. Mary assumes that it's because someone has stolen the body. And this adds salt to the open wound of the grief that their Savior had gone. But I want to, before we get there, I want you to recognize where the story takes place. The Bible tells us it takes place in a garden. And what's beautiful about this is that the story of all creation begins in a garden. The Garden of Eden where humanity and everything was broken in Genesis chapter 3. The story continues in the Garden of Gethsemane, as, as Scott told us on Friday, where Jesus bears the weight and suffering of the world on his shoulders. And the story continues in the Garden of the Tomb. We find out that the worst thing is not the last thing. And we read in John chapter 20, verse 11, when, when Mary discovers that the tomb is empty, she's not comforted by a friend saying, don't worry, he's come back. She's actually worried and concerned because in her reality, she doesn't assume a resurrection. She assumes a crime, a theft, that the body has been stolen. In John chapter 20, verse 11, it reads, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Why was she crying? Because this is insult to injury, friends. This is the final nail in the coffin of the despair around the death of Christ. The one that all the disciples have given up their lives to follow for the last three years is not only now dead, his body is missing and they only assume the worst intentions and the worst motives. Friends, don't rush too, past, too fast past this moment because the Bible invites us in to feel this. We know what this is like when salt is poured into a fresh wound. The belief that all the evidence points to a faithless God and an evil humanity and we can't dare believe that God is still still at work you know the moments where you're saying it just can't get any worse than this and then it does and here we are all proverbially the mary standing at the tomb of christ crying because we don't know the truth and the beauty that friends sunday was still just getting warmed up and as she wept, the story continues. She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked a woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Let's just pause there for a moment. I love how fast Mary just walks past the fact that there are angels in the tomb. It's like she doesn't even question that two angels are talking to her. Her grief has blinded her to the fact that God is trying to highlight, I'm up to something here. And is this not what our grief so often does? Our grief sometimes assumes the worst and maybe we miss what God is up to. And the angels ask her a question, why are you crying? And already they're starting to hint at something. 
The guy named John Milne says it like this, for nothing is more incongruous or, or nothing is more confusing to heaven than tears at the empty tomb of Jesus. Why? Because heaven looks at Mary and says, just wait. It's about to get real. The story isn't over. The day is just warming up, as is the body of Christ. You're about to know the truth, but Mary misses the point altogether. She says, they've taken his body. She turns around, and her grief further disguises to her the man she's looking for, Jesus. And the Bible tells us that as she turns around, this man, who she's yet to recognize, asks her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you were looking for? And John goes on to say that thinking Jesus was a gardener, how beautiful is that? That a story that began in the garden, an Eden and a garden that was lost because of humanity's sin, a story that continues in the garden of Gethsemane, I don't think it's actually accidental that she recognizes him as a gardener. Not a gardener of just the world, but the gardener of our hearts. Rocks up into this story and she says to him, Sir, she says to Jesus, Sir, if you have carried him away, she accuses him of the very theft of his own body. Tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And I will get him. She has not realized the gardener, Jesus Christ himself, has returned. He's returned to restore the beauty of creation. He's coming back to graft the branches of those who've been separated back to the true vine of Jesus Christ that we might bear the fruit of eternal love and goodness and compassion and grace, the fruit that will last. So Jesus, in full compassion, he looks at her and he looks her in the eye and this man that she has not recognized says her name. Jesus says to her, Mary. Why is this significant? The Bible tells us that not only does the shepherd know his sheep by name, but that the sheep know the shepherd's voice. And in identifying her by intimately saying, I'm not just a gardener, I'm not just a random, I am the one you're looking for. She turns to him and she calls out, Rabboni, which means teacher. And in this moment, everything starts to unfold. She clings to him and Jesus turns back to Mary and says, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended into the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Let me just pause there. Do you see what Jesus says the resurrection now means? That God the Father is no longer just the Father of Jesus Christ the Son, but because of His death and resurrection, He has become her Father, your Father, my Father. Jesus is inviting Mary into relational intimacy. And so Mary Magdalene goes to the disciples, and we find out in verse 18, she declares, I have seen the Lord. And the story kind of concludes then. She tells him everything that, and these things that had happened to her. And I want to ask this question today. Why is this such good news to the disciples? Why is the idea that Mary Magdalene has seen the Lord such good news? Who cares? In this moment, they, they could have even understood it as maybe she'd just seen his body, but she doesn't say that, does she? I have seen the Lord. She doesn't say, I've seen where they've buried him. She doesn't say, I've seen where they've taken him. She's implying something to the disciples. The tomb is empty for a reason. Sunday is not as bad a day as we once hoped. That reality we went to bed with is no longer true. Friends, why does it matter that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Why is this significant? Because today I believe there are three things that Jesus Christ's resurrection changed for Mary, changed for the disciples, changed in the garden, but more importantly, changes for you today. The first thing that Jesus' resurrection changes is it changes the world's history. The second thing that it changes is it changes your personal reality. And the final thing it changes is it changes the universal trajectory. What do I mean? 
See, Jesus' resurrection, the fact that Mary had seen the living Jesus Christ changes the history of the world. See, for many of us, maybe you're here joining in today because the story of Easter is a great reason for us to eat chocolate and gather around something that we like to keep us warm at night. That there's a nice fairy tale of a guy who goes to a cross because he loves you and then rises from the dead again because it's a nice way to put a full stop at the end of a really bad deed on Friday. But it's not enough. Because you see, I believe the most important question that you can answer this Easter is who was Jesus and did he rise from the dead? Who was Jesus and did he actually rise from the dead? Because if you answer, well, Jesus was no one and no, he didn't rise from the dead, then friends, nothing changes. And it's peculiar why you would be joining us this Easter, why you'd be here, because that doesn't make sense. Because we don't celebrate today a nice story. We celebrate a reality that we believe changes everything. We believe that because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that death is losing. No, no, no. Death has lost its sting. This story is not just a convenient, nice story that we wrap ourselves up in when the world has gotten dark, but a truth we hold on to that we remember that darkness has not won. A guy named Sean McDowell says that whenever he's talking to people about the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says this. See, many people may reject the historical resurrection of Jesus. It is not the type of claim that can actually be true for you and, and not true for me. And, and this is so important. Friends, the tomb was either empty on the third day or it was occupied. There's no in between. There's no middle ground. Before anyone, before you, before I can grasp the transforming power of the resurrection of Jesus, we must realize that it is first a matter of objective fact, not a personal preference. I don't know why you're here today. I don't know why you tuned in or if this is a family tradition for you to come to church or maybe you're a part of our new life church family. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a subjective choice to choose in or not. We believe that this actually happened, that there is historical proof around this. And this historical event points to a greater and deeper reality. Because ultimately, this is not a truth that Christians hold to. It's a truth that Jesus declared about himself. In John chapter 11, verse 25, it says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus himself testifies, I will resurrect from the dead and bring resurrection power with me. So if Jesus doesn't resurrect from the dead, friends, I have bad news. Jesus is a liar. Now, that's a bit harsh. I realize some of you were not expecting the preacher to accuse Jesus of lying to you this Easter. You might be like, well, maybe we don't have to go that far because you know, Jesus said some really good things as well. And even if he didn't rise from the dead, I don't, I don't think we have to discount everything. Friends, if I were to say to you today, hey, you should be nice to each other, love one another, and, and you know, just genuinely be good. Now I'm going to go die, and then I'm going to raise myself to the, from the dead again in three days' time. It would be hard for you to separate one from the other. You'd go, yeah, I mean, he said some nice things, but let's just all recognize he's pretty crazy. And I'd be concerned, like this guy thinks he's actually got the power to resurrect from the dead. This is also how we should hold Jesus in the weight as well. There are no two mites about it. We either think Jesus was crazy when he believed that he would come back from the dead or he was something else. Tim Keller answers the question like this. He says, if Jesus was raised from the dead, you're actually going to have to deal with the whole Bible. 
because Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. I don't know why you're vexing yourself over this. And many of us sit here and maybe you're struggling today with Christian morality or Christian truth. Or you're like, I don't know if I like the church or not. Friends, don't start with any of those questions. Start with this question. Did Jesus come back from the dead? Did he raise to life? And is he who he said he was? Because if all those things are true, then the rest of Jesus' teaching become more palatable. Because the fact of the matter is, Paul, Tim Keller writes, was more offended by Christians than you. He was so offended. He was killing Christians. And Tim Keller helps us understand he's not advising that this should be the way that we walk forward. But when Paul realized that Jesus had been raised, it didn't matter what offended him about Christianity anymore. It didn't matter because it was true. And we have to keep that in mind. The resurrection is a paradigm shifting, shattering historical event. Do you believe it today? You might be like, well, Michael, how do we know? What historical proof is that? I don't want to go too far into this, but let me just label four things real quick that help build a historical case for this. Number one is that the first people to find that Jesus was raised from the dead were women. And we think women don't have equal rights today. It was worse back in ancient Jerusalem, where in those days, women, their testimony could not be held up in court. If you were going to build a false story, the last people that you should get to help you build that case in ancient Jerusalem would have been a woman. So by the very fact that the gospel writers write in these controversial use of women as the first witnesses to not only the empty tomb, but the resurrected Christ, the only reason that historians, both Christian and non-Christian, can assume is because it must have happened. The second reason is that more than 500 people have documented historically to have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. And these 500 people who have documented these things, we, we might then say, well, they, they probably had reason and something to gain from all attesting to God, Christ being resurrected from the dead. Most of these 500 people who witnessed and claimed and testified to his resurrection actually ended up dying horrible deaths. So did a lot of their families. They lost all power, all money. They gained nothing by holding to this truth, but they refused to deny it even unto the painful deaths they experienced themselves. Now you might turn around and say, well, they probably all hallucinated the same thing. There have been psychological research, a guy named Dr. Gary A. Sibke, a, a clinical psychologist writes that he's done studies into this and there is very little, if any proof in history of any documented group hallucinogenic or, or moment of hallucination of someone coming back from the dead and everyone agreeing as that happened. He said, this is, this is a historically weird event that can't be proven by other events to be a hallucination. And finally, friends, the, one of the biggest things that grips me as a student of history is there is no body. You know, the Caesar Augustus was the emperor of Rome and was called to be a god of his day and age, but he died. And when I went to Rome, Rome, I went and visited his tomb where his body laid as a divine God of ancient Rome. He died and they buried him in his mausoleum. To this day, no historian or archaeologist, both Christian or non-Christian, have ever been able to find the tomb of Jesus, have ever been able to find the body of Jesus. Because why would you mark where his tomb was if he no longer needed it? Friends, why is this important? There is more historical fact, but the onus is on you. If you do not believe in the reality of Christ raising from the dead, it isn't because there isn't proof out there, friends. It's often because we haven't answered the question. And this matters. Why? Paul says this, because if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. This isn't an optional truth for the Christian because everything hangs on it because it doesn't just change world history. It changes my personal reality. A guy named Stephen Hawking, a great atheist, says this, that Christian, Christianity is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. 
I actually sympathize and agree with him because I am afraid of the dark. I'm not afraid of the dark out there. Now, I'm actually also afraid of the dark in reality, but I'm not just afraid of the dark of the evil world around me. I'm afraid of the dark in here. But I don't hold to Christianity because it's a nice fairy story that makes me feel good because I believe it's the only answer that can help me solve the problem of my own heart. See, when you recognize the depth of human darkness, the hopeless estate, not just of our world, but our own soul, you begin to question, is there any good? Is there any truth? Is there anything that can save me from the darkness? Not that I find out in the world, but friends, just look inside yourself. The darkness you find in here and all of human history points to the fact that we've never been able to solve the answer of the human problem on our own. Romans, 8 verse 20, Romans 3 verse 23 says this, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's you, that is me. And this is why Scott unpacks so beautifully that the cross is nothing without the tomb. It's nothing without understanding that we desperately need it, but not just for Jesus to pay the price for our sins, but that he might come back from the dead. You see, the cross means nothing without the tomb, and the tomb means nothing without the cross. On Friday, we learned of the human predicament but we learned that the cross was emptied and Christ's body was put in the tomb, that after he paid the debt of what we all did in Genesis chapter 3, that friends, he was placed in a tomb. And that the, 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 the reason why that's significant is it's, it's almost like a prophetic analogy of where the world is heading. It's on a trajectory of death. But the resurrection story tells us that death didn't win. See, the resurrection is not a fairy story for people afraid of their own darkness, but rather a historical fact for people who have realized there is no other option to answer that darkness. Fleming Rutschland says, From beginning to end, the Holy Scriptures testify that your predicament, my predicament, humanity is so serious, so grave, so irredeemable from within that nothing short of divine intervention can rectify it. The garden was lost in Genesis because man wanted to live life on his own. But in the tomb of the garden, it was resurrected again. There's this sense of God coming down, God stepping in, that Jesus died for our deaths on Friday, but the story doesn't end there. The empty tomb tells us that Jesus went to the cross to restore us back to life and offer us forgiveness and also take the punishment for our death and sin, but also that all of these things actually worked, that the divine intervention of Christ to take away our sins actually worked. Death did not win. Our sin was paid for. The check was cleared. And there is now no more owing to God that those who have accepted him as Lord and Savior get to have not just forgiveness, but friends, you get to have life and life to the full. This is why Paul goes on and says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And now you and I are first fruits of that hope. We have hope in Jesus. And my question to you today is, have you allowed the life that Jesus offers you to give you a newness, a redemption, and a renewal of your heart? Because that's what's on offer for those who believe in the resurrected Christ. But Christ doesn't just come and change world history. He doesn't just come and change your personal reality. But finally, he changes the universe's trajectory. See, it's not a question in many of us that the whole world is falling apart, that we are on a, a trajectory of atrophy, that everything is decaying and dying. And we as Christians believe that this is not God's intended order. That in Genesis chapter 3, he didn't, he, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, he didn't long for suffering and pain to be in the world, but we longed for a world without God. And so life was removed and death became the dominant force. But Easter and the empty tomb is not just a, a reality on offer for your heart. It's actually a preview of what God is going to do for all creation. 
See, God is restoring all things. The empty tomb tells us that one day the garden we lost in Eden, the garden of suffering we join with in Christ in Gethsemane, will once day be trumped by the garden of the kingdom that will be restored again. A kingdom, friends, where there is no sickness, where there is no pain, no cancer, no sin, no evil. The trajectory of this world because of Jesus one day will be renewed and redeemed and restored again. This is why we have to believe the resurrection was more than a nice story. It was a fact that it's more than a nice story for your life. It's a reality you can experience in your heart, but it's also a future we will celebrate as humanity. These are reminders to the Christian that every moment when you walk through suffering, every moment when you walk through pain, every moment where there's sickness, a bad diagnosis, where death is, is troubling you, where there is still stuff that's hurting and destroying, these are moments we can be reminded our God is not finished yet. That Easter doesn't finish on Saturday, but on Sunday. And that He is redeeming and restoring not just the human heart, but our world. I say this story most Easter's because it's actually my favorite. It's the story of Johnny Erickson Tata, who understands the future that the resurrection tells us. Johnny Erickson Tata was actually a paraplegic. She was an Olympic swimmer. And she became a paraplegic because of a horrific accident. And she was also a Christian. And one day, Johnny's in church. And as she's there, the pastor hops up and invites everybody to come and kneel. Joni, being a quadriplegic, cannot, and she starts weeping. And they come up to her after the service and say, Joni, we are so sorry. We forgot you were with us. We're so sorry we asked everyone to kneel. We know you can't do that. She says, friends, I'm not weeping because I cannot. I'm weeping because I saw before me today a picture of eternity, that one day my body will be restored. One day I will join with you as we kneel around the throne, that my current reality is suffering and pain, but the empty tomb means my story doesn't end here. I love that story because this is the resurrection hope, not just of my heart, but of our world. He is making all things new. We live as an Easter Sunday people in an Easter Saturday world, not denying that our world is in despair, but knowing that that despair is not the end of the story. And so I finish with this question from Tim Keller. Why wouldn't you want this? Why wouldn't you want this? Even if you don't like some aspects of Christian morality and the Christian ethic, why wouldn't you want this hope for restoration? Because you're not being honest, honest with yourself if you don't want to know that your story doesn't finish with suffering. That is the hope of the empty tomb. That is the hope of Easter. And that is the hope that we can step into every single one of us today. Would you join with me as we pray? Gracious God, I thank you so much that you are a good God that the tomb does not remain empty. Just as the cross is empty, so is the tomb, Lord Jesus, because our hearts get to be full with the reality of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And so I pray right now that our, any of us are not experiencing the fullness and reality of the resurrection of Jesus in our life. Lord, reveal yourself to us in this moment. If you're joining us today and you do not know the resurrection power of Jesus, that you want to believe he didn't just die for your sins, but also raised to life and offers you to become a new creation today, have a new heart and a new reality. If you want to know and claim the hope of Jesus right now, then I would love you to repeat these words after me. Dear Lord Jesus, I repent of my sin and my shame. I'm sorry that my mistake sent you to the cross. But thank you, you didn't stay there. Jesus, help me to experience the reality of the resurrection. I repent and turn to follow you.
Make me a new creation. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, if anyone prayed that prayer with us today, what you began in their home, may you continue in eternity. May they connect and may they become a part of being a disciple and following you. And Lord, may we walk into the world as an Easter Sunday people in an Easter Saturday world, clinging to the reality of our world history, of our personal reality and of our universal trajectory. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Thanks so much for joining us for our Easter services across the weekend. If you did respond to the gospel or would love prayer, we'd love to do that. You can click the live prayer button down below. Friends, we're gathering every single Sunday across our family of churches. And I pray you would go knowing the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. You are a risen and resurrected people. Go and live as an Easter Sunday people in an Easter Saturday world. We'll see you again real soon. Wow, what a powerful day it's been today. It's been great to celebrate with you all. Yes, I love what Michael said, that the resurrection is not a fairy tale for people afraid of their own darkness, but rather a historical fact for people who have realized there is no other option to answer to the darkness of the human heart than divine intervention. If you'd like to know more about Jesus and the Christian faith, we'd love to invite you to join us for Alpha starting on April 20th across all of our New Life churches. Alpha is the perfect place to explore questions about life, faith, and meaning. You can register and find out more by heading to church.nu forward slash alpha. New Life, we are so thankful for your generosity. If you would like to give, you can go to church.nu forward slash giving, or you can go to the link that will appear in the chat. Well, we've reached the end of our Easter Sunday celebration. It's been so good to spend this time with you. And we'd love to invite you to join us next week for Becoming Sunday. As a church this year, we've been exploring becoming. What would it look like for us as a church to become more like Jesus? We'll be gathering back here at church.nu forward slash live at 10 a.m. We can't wait to see you next Sunday. Have a great week.